Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. Welcome in here to Soccer Morning. Brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. I hope you are partaking of the live program at WorldSoccerTalk.com slash live. That is the home for Soccer Morning every weekday from 10 to 11 or 15 usually Eastern Time. Big, big show for you today. You may have watched a ton of soccer this weekend. You may have even partaken in the Oscar nonsense that happened last night. Who stays up for the entire length of the Oscars? They do Best Picture last, and I think it happened at midnight. Now, I'm, I was up. I had some writing to do. I'm a night owl anyway. But who stays up and watches like four hours of the Oscars? I like Neil Patrick Harris as much as the next guy. Well, not all guys, but I like Neil Patrick Harris, and I'm just not going to sit up for that. This is going to be a better show than the Oscars. I can guarantee it. This soccer morning will be better than the Oscars. Take that to the bank. Christian Hinez will join us in just a couple of minutes to go over the Premier League weekend. Lots and lots of controversy, lots of interesting results in the Premier League. Chelsea, Manchester United, some fascinating stuff happening. Jose Mourinho being Jose Mourinho. We may pick Christian Hinez's brain about the reports that Josie Outdoor had as many as seven offers in Europe that he ultimately turned down to make his return to MLS. That's all good stuff. At 10.30 a.m. Eastern, David Amoyal will join us. We'll talk Syria with him. Specifically, we'll talk Parma. Bottom of the table in Syria, likely to be relegated anyway, and yet they may have a forced relegation based on the fact the club's about to go bankrupt. That's never good. And I know what, I know there's plenty of opinion out there in Syria that this isn't the end or this isn't a bad thing. Football will survive. You can't have clubs like Parma going bankrupt, being automatic releg- automatically relegated, having all of their results turned into losses. They only have five that are not losses this season so far. But still, that's not good. Uh, in, in preparation for Christian Edge, let's do the headlines again. A lot of Premier League stuff to talk about. Chelsea drawing Burnley 1-1. Jose Mourinho in the aftermath of that game, dancing around four crucial moments, four key moments for his Blues in a game that represents lost, uh, dropped points for the league leaders. Clearly, Matic's red card is a matter of contention. Ashley Barnes goes in with a very, very ugly tackle. There were penalty claims, a couple of different moments for Chelsea that did not get, they were not given, and they decided the result. And Burnley escapes with a 1-1 draw. Now, we will open up this question later on, but I'm going to use this game and some of the other things that happened this weekend to, again, address the issue of refereeing officiating in the world of, of soccer. We, we, do, can one man do this job anymore? Is it possible? More often than not, we're complaining about the referees, and yes, that's the nature of our fandom, of our tribalism. But sometimes even the completely unbiased observer is going to call foul no pun intended, on some of these refereeing performances. And that game against Burnley for Chelsea clearly represented some poor officiating. Swansea beat Manchester United 2-1. That's a surprise. Bit of a blow for the Reds. Again, uptick in the discussion about whether Louis van Gaal is the kind of guy that get get this team back where they need to be. Opinion out there that David Moyes would already be fired if he was getting the same results or at the same point as Louis van Gaal. Now, that's, I think, Louis van Gaal's reputation. Louis van Gaal's history buys him some extra leash that David Moyes clearly did not get. Is he the right man? Is Louis van Gaal the right man for Manchester United? Difficult to say. And they were going to have a tough time getting back to their previous standard anyway. But it is interesting to see the fan reaction to results like this and to soccer, to a style of football that is not always the most pleasing to watch. Also, the Premier League City gains ground on Chelsea by destroying Newcastle United 5-0. I watched about, I don't know, when did they score the third? Because that's when I turned that game off. That's when I decided that that game was a foregone conclusion and moved on to other things in my day. Now, maybe I would have enjoyed the other two goals. I'm clearly, man, uh, Manchester City can play some wonderful, wonderful football if they want to. Now City has moved within five points of Chelsea at the top of the table. Still seems like a big gap at this point in the season, but you never know. 
Jeff Carlisle back uh, in the States. Jeff Car- Carlisle reporting that neither side is budging on the free agency question when it comes to the ML- MLS-CBA negotiations. But the players and the owners are dug in. The players want it. The owners do not. We are two weeks away from the season, people. A little bit less than that now. I'm starting to worry that strike is imminent. That strike is coming. If you weren't already sold, maybe you are now with the clock ticking down. We had trouble in Brazil. 100 fans arrested due to violence ahead of a game between Fluminense and Vasco da Gama. It's part of the Rio State Championships. Not what you want to see. Police having to break up many fights between the fans in Brazil. Again, we discussed this issue last week on the show. The, dis- the, 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 dis- the distance, the gap between the way some football fans express themselves around the world. I don't care if it's racism or violence or, or homophobia. All of it's bad. All of it needs to be squashed. All of it needs to go away. And yet, is there even a path to get there? Barcelona dropped points, dropped uh, big points against Malaga at home this weekend. While Real Madrid beat Elche 2 nothing. Putting Real Madrid now four points ahead of Barcelona in the in the La Liga race. That's a big, big, big weekend in this season in Spain. With Atletico Madrid dropping off the pace, Real Madrid getting back on the winning side of things, and Barcelona dropping points at home, being shut out by Malaga. Big deal. Barcelona fans, by the way, in response to being uh, investigated over those those chants about Cristiano Ronaldo being a drunk, decided that they were going to chant. Cristiano does not drink water at this match against Malaga. Even when it's not, even when their team is losing a game they crucially needed against a team that they should beat, and let's be honest, Barcelona should beat everybody in La Liga, the fans there are still taking shots at the star of the rival because that's the way Spain works. Setting this up for David Amoyal in a little bit, I remember at 10.30 a.m. Eastern, Parma on the edge of bankruptcy. If bankrupt, all if if declared bankrupt, all results will be voided, become defeats. Right now, they're bottom of the table with 10 points, three wins, and a draw. I said five non uh, I said five non-losses earlier. I meant four. They have 10 points. So there you go. Let's uh, set this up. Premier League coming up with Christian Hanez should be a good discussion. Again, plenty of talking points over in England. As some interesting things happening, officiating results, and the like. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, finally. Apparently I'm going to call random people around the world and ask them about football. I didn't mean to. I meant to get Christian Hedges on the line, and I finally did that. You can find him uh, numerous places, a football report, uh, ITV, Guardian. How you doing, Christian? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm well, and I know that you are... A, a football expert, as opposed to that 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 gentleman I called, who was very confused as to why he was receiving a call from an American about uh, I didn't even mention football. Grayson, we had an inter- interesting weekend in the Premier League. I outlined some of the results at the top of the program. I'm going to start with Chelsea because uh, not only was that a bit of a surprising match, but we had uh, we had a red, controversial red card, a couple of shouts for for penalties, and Jose Mourinho uh, doing that thing he does now where he criticizes referees without actually saying anything so he can, quote-unquote, avoid being punished for it. Um, the, the big moments in the match, uh, those moments that, that obviously Jose was upset about, what did you make of them? What did you make of Madage's red card? Um, I, I saw certain points with, with what he was trying to say in terms of the, the minutes that he outlined and also the Madage red card. The problem he has is, and this is a problem... I'm sure you and I also heard when we used to play youth soccer was it's not your job to enact retribution sure. in terms of, yes, Ashley Barnes went over the top of Matic. In fairness, that's not the first time I've seen Ashley Barnes <laughs> bend the rules of the game this season. The problem is, is that that's what the referee's for. He's the arbitrator. He will sort the situation with Ashley Barnes out. And it's not for you to to try and give justice yourself because two wrongs don't make a right. Sure. And that's where I think Mourinho perhaps has these blue tinted specs on and doesn't quite see that, yes, I can 
completely see why Matic is frustrated because that's a potential leg-breaking tackle that essentially would have taken him out of the, the Capital One Cup final. It would have taken him out of the Champions League run. It would have ended his season. So, of course, he's frustrated. But in those moments, you have to really keep your calm, keep your composure, and just reiterate the fact that the referee will sort this situation. I think where he now has grounds to really be frustrated is that there will be no charge for Ashley Barnes because whether you say that it's momentum or or what have you carrying him over into that tackle, it's still a horrible tackle. Mm -hmm. It's still right on the part of the leg where essentially things could snap and we've seen players suffer truly horrendous leg breaks from. That that I think is the the biggest uh, moment of the match, just because of of the red card, which obviously changed the complexion for Chelsea coming down the stretch of the game. But there were there were obviously uh, other moments earlier in the match that could have turned things Chelsea's way. You had uh, a handball penalty that wasn't called. You had uh, Ashley Barnes involved in a in a in a tackle with Ivanovic. Um, these moments. I think there's that perception, Christian, that these moments always go to the big club. Certainly Manchester United seems to be accused of getting biased refereeing on a regular basis. Uh, is that not, is not that the case here? We just, I mean, I, I guess what the conclusion we come to is that officiating is difficult and, and quite often we get poor, poor performances just as, as players sometimes put out poor performances. Of course. I think we have to accept as well that we as a, a footballing community don't give referees the, the proper and just uh, tools with which to complete the task to the best of their ability. We have technology now that could aid their performance significantly and for whatever reason those at the very top of the game don't see fit to enact those pieces of technology. We're certainly seeing these discussions but for me these discussions are long after the horse has bolted, long after we've self-included yeah. uh, you know, criticised referees to the point where you question why you would become a referee if you're a young 20-something plying your trade in the lower leagues, trying to build your way up that football pyramid. Um, and I think in, in relation to the penalty call, for example, that to me isn't a penalty because it hits his leg and goes up to his arm. It has to be the hand or the arm rather motioning towards the ball. And that's where the problem is, is that essentially, much like at the stadium, you can call for anything you want. And yet if you get it wrong, there's no kind of, evaluation of your call or your misinterpretation of the law but because the referee is the arbiter and essentially the rule maker any mistake they make is glaringly highlighted is dissected we question if they're fit enough i mean even Mourinho has questioned if some of these referees are fit enough i think that's disgraceful personally to do that because by all means question the lack of consistency in decisions question those higher up who aren't giving the referees these facilities to work with to the best of their ability but i think to question someone's professionalism like that is is bordering on misconduct himself and and rightly so he's he's been uh punished for that and now he's trying to play this game where he skirts around things and i think this is why he loves england because he can do this whereas if you look at italy italy didn't really stand for it they asked him questions very hard questions and he was forced to answer them and when he came out with these inflammatory statements about ranieri and and such like he was held to account for them whereas here it seems almost as if in england we pandered to him i know on sunday sky sports uh, shifted their, their intended guest, James Beattie, the former Southampton striker, to make way for Jose Mourinho on their programme. And they announced it some 20 minutes before. And he essentially held court over the Premier League weekend. And it, in truth, the presenters looked intimidated to be around him. And yet for me, this is the kind of situation where we should be holding him to account and asking him the tough questions and forcing him to, to give an answer on record. He, his, his act, and it certainly is an act, still fascinates me. He is he always manages to convey this outward, this outward appearance of not caring, and yet it's very clear that he cares deeply, and he's commenting in a way that, uh, again, sort of deflects criticism from himself, especially in England. Now, coming back to the issue of refereeing, and I don't want to make this entire discussion about this because we have other games to cover, but when it comes to refereeing, it seems to me we, we often complain about the, the symptom rather than addressing the root cause, which is what you just just said. These these referees don't have the tools to do the job in a modern context. 25 years ago, Sure, um, you know, maybe fit enough to cover most of the, uh, most of the pitch, maybe able to to see most incidents. Certainly, you had a rougher game, so so more things got uh, you know got by. Referees didn't have to pull their whistle quite as often. In this situation, what you're saying, what we're essentially saying is, referees are fallible, and either we deal with that fact and we accept it, and we appreciate so, sort of the the controversy and the entertainment value that lies 
within a, a game like this, a match like this, or we address the problem and what 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 steps can be made, Christian? We have to enact that technology. We to sound, without wishing to sound like the billion dollar man introduction, we have the technology. We can rebuild <laughs> the situation. We can give them replays. We can give them opportunities to breathe and let the situation just take a minute so that we can make the best decisions, so that we influence things in the correct and proper way, so that we don't have these debates of, well, is it the big teams that get the decisions consistently? I remember there being a, a report conducted possibly over a decade now that said at Old Trafford, Manchester United got four or five, four out of five of the 50-50 decisions that were contested there. For me, situations like that and these kind of debates become asinine because we can't change it. All we can do is change the future that's about to to approach us. And we do that by putting the referees in the best situation so that they aren't the sole bearers of the injustice. They aren't the people that we turn to and blame. We say, actually, it's it's due to all of us. It's, we all have a responsibility to make sure that we lobby FIFA as, as journalists and media people and perhaps even fans lobby FIFA to say, look, there's a lot of money riding on these games as well. There's a lot invested in the game in, in its entirety. And consequently, we want the best available decision-making, whether that be artificial intelligence or artificial intelligence and the eye of the referee who, mm. who should be respected. I think it comes down to the basic question of whether or not we're striving for a perfect game. It's impossible to get there, but I suppose it's, it's a basic philosoph- uh, philosophical question of whether or not you want to push towards a perfect a perfectly called game or if you can live with again some of these moments and some of these controversies you don't want you don't want people's livelihoods to turn on one call or another and certainly when a player like Ashley Barnes goes in on Matic and it's a it's a potentially a leg-breaking tackle you want to you want to try to stamp that out but but you can't always account for for player behavior I don't know there's lots of things at play here um I I tend to I tend to lean towards human error is part of the the game Christian and I, I maybe I will get upset if my team is is uh, punished by a poor call, but I, I think on the whole, I'm, I'm willing to live with some of these things. And, and you're in, completely entitled to it, and I don't blame you for feeling that way, that it is the, the spontaneity of sport to have those kind of moments. But personally, I look at things like Frank Lampard's goal against Germany in South Africa. I look at title deciders, moments like that, relegation deciders. These are moments that impact clubs significantly. If a team hypothetically goes down from the Premier League this season, they have to cut their budgets. Maybe they have to let staff from the, the front office and the back room go. It's, true. it's those little tributaries that feed out into things. And perhaps I'm being you know too idealistic, but I, I just want the right outcome to be as prevalent as possible within the game so that there is no case of that bitterness and that resentment so that we can have as pure a game as possible. Speaking of the right outcome, Swansea beat Manchester United this weekend 2-1. Was that, was that the right outcome? What exactly uh, limited Manchester United in an attempt to, to continue their climb up the table? I think they're just passing for passing's sake. That was certainly the criticism that was leveled at Louis van Gaal when he was at Bayern Munich. But yes, they they had the possession and that was wonderful and looked good on paper but ultimately it it didn't achieve anything these were sideways passes it's not as we look at Pep Guardiola for comparison this incisive deconstructive passing that really does cut through teams and I think you look at the weekend the defensive issues were were a problem again consistently we're seeing Van Gaal say that he thinks he's found his best team and then it changes again and mm-hmm. and just the diamond in general is not really where I think Man United are best suited it has to be a flat four in that middle. I think Daly Blind is constantly being pulled around and, and moved around into positions. And, and while he's versatile and can play those positions, he can't play three of them in the, in the same game. He needs to have some kind of consistency to him. And the same with Ander Herrera. There's a lot of new players coming into the system and you're almost overloading them with information. I think you have to remember that a footballer can only take in so much when you factor in they have a language to learn, they have a, a climate to, to get used to, a style of play even not just from the manager, but also the new league they're entering. And for me, that shows consistently with Manchester United that there's just not that fluency there. There's not that high tempo that we associate with them. And it's because there's been such wide-reaching, such sweeping changes through that team this season to the point where they're just not communicating like teammates would. Robin Van Persie uh, left that uh, left that match on crutches with a walking boot. I'm not sure exactly what that means for his 
immediate future, but he's dealt with injuries, and, and now you wonder if it's finally going to be Falcao's turn. And, and I, I have to ask you, what, what do you make of the fact that uh, Louis Van Hal has yet to be able to, to leverage Falcao's ability, and you have Angel Di Maria. There's this kind of push-pull, whether or not it's Van Hal's fault that Di Maria is not playing well, or if Di Maria is just not suited for the Premier League and this team. We're, we're uh, very talented players, Christian. Yeah, they're ex- of course, they're, they are exceptionally talented players. Di Maria in particular really did light up the Premier League in the beginning. I think they're just trying to find the best place for him. I think, personally, out wide is where he's going to work best for Manchester yes, United, yes. just because it, it it focuses him almost. I feel when you put him in the middle, you give him too many options. That works for some players like, say, Raquel May or players like that. But you look at someone like Di Maria or Ben Arthur, these players that have so much swirling in their head, too many avenues is a bad idea because then they don't know which one to pick. If you give them a channel to run at people, to really drive at a fullback in the in the way that you could with a wide position, I think Di Maria, Di Maria would have a lot more impact for Manchester United. And Falco, I think, essentially, Van Gaal is, is playing a very smart, shrewd game because that's a significant investment if they purchase him from Monaco at the end of the season. I see Monaco are saying that there are a number of high-class teams interested in Falcao I'm not seeing that reflected in the back pages. I'm hearing Monaco say that a lot, and I would imagine they are because they probably want to cash in and sell Radamel Falcao. But if you're saying that based on his performances for Manchester United this season, I would encourage those scouting teams to have another look because for me, he has looked off the pace. And with questions about his age and and whether he maybe had been slightly dishonest earlier in his career, the, the knee injuries that have really, I think, started to take a toll on him in a, in a more physical, faster-paced league, I see no reason to keep throwing him in there and keep racking up those games if we're to believe this idea that it's an appearance clause mark that when he hits a certain number of games, Man United are obligated to purchase him, which is a a theme we're starting to see with more and more deals now in, in Europe. Rest of the rest of the results from the league very very quickly. Uh, Manchester United five, Newcastle nil. A, a a solid performance by by Manchester City. Absolutely uh, destroyed Newcastle. Um, any any thoughts on City's form at the moment, and uh, you know whether or not again five points back now with Chelsea dropping points against Burnley, a chance for them perhaps to 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 give a Chelsea a run. Of course, the concern for them is the dueling with the Champions League and and what have you because. Yaya Toure, I thought, was instrumental, again, in, in you know destroying Newcastle on Saturday. Um, he misses the Barcelona game, which, again, puts further questions in a further microscope up to Fernandinho and Fernando, who, for me, haven't really been dynamic enough in the, the final third this season. Uh, I think Manchester City, as a club, will always have these kind of results where they do just demolish a team and you question why they aren't doing better. It's just that consistency, I think. Mm. It's it's finding that squad and finding that fluency, which they seem to struggle with. And, and I'm still not entirely sure why they have that fluency issue because it seems much like with, with Chelsea, they started fantastically and Aguero looked razor sharp. And now there's just that little dip with them missing Toure. And I don't think it's just down to one player. I think that's too reductionist. Mm. Uh, Southampton, Liverpool, Southampton obviously aggrieved over the lack of a call on Mignolet coming out of the box and, and handling the ball. Was that the... Was that the wrong decision for you? And, and was that did that result uh, flatter Liverpool a bit? Yeah, I, I must confess I agree with Ryan Bertrand, who, who tweeted minute four. Um, clearly, Jose Mourinho had some influence on him uh, while he was at Chelsea. I think they have every right to feel incredibly aggrieved at the fact they didn't get a penalty for that. Um, but on the, the positive side for Liverpool, if you're you're a Liverpool fan and you want to be happy, Simon Mignolet is now third in the league for clean sheets behind Fraser Forster and Ben Forster, and they're, they're doing fantastic things and they're, they're starting to put it together. They've cut Manchester United's gap from, from 10 points after Boxing Day till two. And it seems as if Brendan Rodgers is finally starting to, to get what he wants from this team. Well, Coutinho's goal, I mean, that that's just a brilliant individual uh, uh, moment for him. And he's been He's been one of Liverpool's key players this year. Very, very quickly before I let you go, I'm going to come back to uh, to Josie Altidore. Uh, left your neck of the woods very recently to go join TFC. And then we've got no- news out of Toronto where Josie himself has said that he had four offers in Germany, two offers in France, a, a, a Premier League loan possibility. Now, there, you know, he signed for a lot of money in Toronto. We all understand why he made that move. I should we be surprised by the amount of interest that he had, or, or some of the were some of these um, quote unquote offers a little less than that? 
No, I think we shouldn't be surprised at all. Josie Altidore is still a United States international with a fantastic record for his country, a, a fantastic record for Isaac Altmar, and a player that for me is in the prime of his career or moving into that phase of his career. I know for a fact that Lille were very interested in him in, in France because they've had some, some striking issues up front. And equally, you have to remember that just because a player is, is poor in England does not mean that that is the, the death knell of their, their career. Diego Forlan is perhaps the greatest mm. example of players who haven't shone in the Premier League, but have gone abroad and found their league and found their style of play. So it shouldn't surprise me at all. I think, if anything, it's, it's quite a coup for MLS to be able to say that they were able to convince him that his future lay there, because I imagine it was more than just money, because from speaking to Josie, from being around him, I get the feeling that financial uh, implications aren't his greatest um, motivator in that sense. I feel for him, it's about the soccer, it's about where he's going to play, what he's going to achieve, and he he clearly thinks he can achieve something at, at Toronto. Yeah, I, and I believe that I believe Michael Bradley being there was a major factor for him. I mean, I think he has a very good relationship with Michael Bradley, and I think Michael Bradley, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, despite only being a few years older, is a bit maybe a bit of a mentor to Josie in this situation, an opportunity to reclaim his career at at home i mean it's canada but it's still mls uh has got to be a good thing yeah. for josie outdoor christian Hanez, go follow him on twitter it's k-h-e-n-a sorry let me try it again christian k-h-e-n-e-a-g-e there you go he's uh covering uh football for many different outlets from over in uh northeast england thank you very much for your time christian i appreciate it a pleasure as always, man. Hopefully That's speak good. to you soon. There you go. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to grab David Emoyal and shift to Syria. Parma's in trouble. We'll take a look at the table. Don't go anywhere. World, sorry. Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. We shift now to that country that looks like a boot. I've been listening to um, a podcast, The History of Rome, so I'm all into Italy right now. David Emoyal joins us, talks some Syria, Calcio as it is. David, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for uh, for joining us. Let's start a look. The, the league season continues. There's certainly things to talk about in terms of results. Roma may be disappointing a little bit. Juve at the top, as always. But the story right now is Parma and the financial condition of the club. They are bottom of the table in Syria at the moment. And there, there may be some punishments that really don't have a, a big practical effect. But any time a club like Parma is being threatened by bankruptcy, their alarm bells are going off in Italy, I imagine. Certainly. And, you know, this is a situation that is becoming worse every day. And if you remember, it was just last May that Parma had qualified for the Europa League. I still remember seeing the players celebrating on the pitch, making it to European competition. Donadoni was being hailed as a potential candidate to join Milan's coach. And look how quickly things have gone sour. You know, things... uh became alarming once Parma was unable to play in the Europa League because they weren't able to make some payments that made them eligible to play in European competitions. And since then, we've had two ownership changes. The team wasn't able to play their game on Friday because they weren't able to pay the personnel at the stadium and the electricity at the stadium, so the match had to be postponed. So that's how dire the situation is for them right now. What I read at this point says that uh, I'm a little confused as to where they are in the process right now of, of the review of the club and whether or not they're going to be declared bankrupt or, or, you know, obviously in England we talk about going into administration. What's the process in Italy and what's the ultimate punishment for Parma should they be declared insolvent? Well, you know, this is uh, both the beauty and the frustration of Italy. You know, the process a lot of times is kind of made up as you go along. There's been a lot of different players involved. Now, there's a new president, an Italian president, that took over the club about 10 days ago. He was kind of appointed out of the blue by the league to kind of oversee what's going on. He said he was going to make some payments to pay the players, and they needed to make the payments up until December of last year. The, pay- the players haven't received any wages 
off season and that payment didn't go through. So now the city of Parma is involved on top of the Italian league and not only the soccer federation, but pretty much the whole sporting federation is now involved. I read a quote from the president of the Italian sporting federation. So even above calcio and soccer, and he was like, I'm, I'm really puzzled by what's going on. We're trying to get to the bottom of this. So it's really very hard to tell where we're at. I mean, there's really two outcomes that I see possible. Either they're going to do what is called a piloted bankruptcy, where basically someone's just going to pay the players' wages, and Parma would go to Italy's second division next season. We saw that with Bari, who was another historical club a while ago, or they could go completely bankrupt, and basically Parma would have to start over. They'd have to call the club something else, and they'd have to start from the fourth division. Mm. Uh, I unfortunately saw that with my home team, Padova, went through that last year. It's something in Italy that's unfortunately more common than you think. To give you an idea, in the second division, they have the playoffs scheduled in a way that in case a team goes bankrupt, they still have time to bring in another one. So that tells you all you need to know. There's a provision in the schedule just in case a team goes bankrupt. So unfortunately, these things are common in Italy, but this is the first time we're seeing a club of the caliber of Padma that so many people know about because of the great players they've had in the past. Right, and and obviously people uh, who pay attention know Rangers went through this exact thing. Now, obviously, I'm sure the structure is yeah. different. Uh, Rangers now a, a big club playing in a very small division in, in Scotland trying to make their way back up. So yeah. if if Parma, Parma in their current iteration goes bankrupt, they would you, you would expect that they would reorganize, start in the fourth division, and, and try to climb their way up. If, if this is common, or relatively common in Italy, certainly yeah. more, than, more than one club has had this happen to them, does that speak to... You know, the, the the obviously the organization the structure of Italian football is there any way to prevent this or is that something that look we're just going to have to deal with it because there there's really no way around some clubs being poorly run or or running out of money. Well, I, I think there is some hope because we're seeing so many foreign investors interested in Italian clubs. I think that's really where I have hope. You know, we saw Palotta with Roma, we saw uh, Bologna being bought by North American investors as well, and we saw Inter with Toyer. So, you know, my hope is that there's more foreign investors. I think, you know, a lot of times presidents in Italy are more fans of the club. They kind of run their club like you and I would run our fantasy teams, and I think, you know, that kind of really hurts in the long run. My guess is they're going to try to save Parma, where they just go into the second division. They would be relegated anyway at this point, even say they didn't have all this. They'll just pay the immediate debts to the players. That's my guess. I don't think they're going to want it to go all the way down to the fourth hmm. division. What we usually see with clubs that have to go all the way down, they're already in lower divisions. So uh, let's see what happens. The last huge club that had this history was Napoli about 10, 12 years ago. They've come out of it well. Let's hope that the same happens for Parma. Does this does this potentially, and again, some of the, the talk is that if, if – Things go poorly if 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 the resolution to the situation is the worst of the possibilities that Parma's remaining schedule every match on the remaining schedule would be declared a three nil win for the opponent. Um, does that have an, a potential impact on on the table as we're looking at it right now? I think a little bit. I think you know, if anything, from what I understand, and this may change, that the results that already happened would stay. So Juve defeated Parma while Roma drew against them. That could have an impact on the potential title race. I think Juve still has to play Parma the second time. So I guess a Roma fan could say, "Well, you know, Juve is going to get a win. We drew against them." on the pitch. But I think you is pretty secure in the title regardless of that. I guess it would have an impact, you know, on the other races to avoid relegation. Um so I don't think it makes a huge impact just because Parma would probably have been relegated anyway. It's just really another black eye for Italian football. Um there's been many recently, so I'm hoping they find the best solution possible. I have looked at this table four times this morning. I've already messed it up twice. I I did have it right. They have three wins and two draws on the season for their for their ten points, as you said, bottom of the table. Let let's look at some results um, from the weekend and just look at the the state of Syria as it is right now. You mentioned we mentioned whether or not Roma and, and the fans would have a beef over 
um, over the results, uh, the rest of Parma's results being declared wins for their opponents. They had the opportunity to beat Parma. They didn't do that. And, th- and then they also yeah. uh, they also underwhelmed again this weekend. Uh, you know, nine points back, I'm not sure that they really would have much complaint. Yeah, I don't. You know, I think at this point, you know, Roma has only themselves to blame for how things went. Juve did give them a few chances. They grew against Zena. They haven't been, you know, their usual strong style. I think Juve rightfully is kind of focused a little bit on the Champions League, their big game tomorrow. So I think, you know, they did give Roma some chances to get back in. If at the end of the season, you know, Roma fans are going to complain about the Parma match and the referee decisions against Juve in that match a couple of months ago, I think they're kind of missing the point. I think, you know, Roma, this season, for one reason or another, they got off to a great start. They've been really hurt, and a lot of their key players, uh, they've had a lot of injuries, but a lot of their key players are playing very poorly. Pjanic and Rossi have been very poor. This season, Kisa, who came in as a free transfer, has pretty much been their best midfielder, and I think that says so much about them. You know, they both had the injury to Slutman and Iturba, their big signing this summer. Uh, but I think there's no way around it. Roma's been very disappointing recently. I think on January 6th, they were just one point behind Juve, and since then, they haven't won a match. So, um, rough for them. I think they need to kind of salvage the Europa League. They need to go play against Feyenoord, they had a 1-1 draw at home. I think it's really important for them to make a run in the Europa League to at least salvage the season somewhat. Speaking of uh, Europe, as you mentioned, Juve maybe focused on their uh, Champions League match tomorrow. Hosting Dortmund, um, obviously Dortmund has had a bad run in the Bundesliga. They're starting to put some results together there, but they've obviously been very good in the Champions League. When you look at sure. this uh, this tie for Juventus, what is the key here to potentially getting by one of the more maddenly and inconsistent clubs in Europe, but certainly one of the teams uh, you know capable of playing very good soccer? Uh, I think Juve's key players have to really step up. You know, Tevez has won a Champions League before at United. He's been better in the Champions League this year. He ended his scoring drought. I think they really need him to have a great match. You know, you hear all this talk about Pogba being worth 100 million euros. And to me, what better way to prove that he's worth a huge transfer fee by having a dominating performance in the Champions League, which, to be honest, off the top of my head, I can't think of a really signature moment for him in the Champions League. The Dow's had an up-and-down season. He's had a few clashes with Juve. Uh, with him staying out late, uh, he rested against Atalanta on Friday. This is a great opportunity. So I think Juve, you know, if the key players step up, they should be slight favorites against Dortmund, although Dortmund has, you know, obviously better recent Champions League pedigree. But I was reading on Juve's expected starting lineup. They have close, they have almost double the amount of Champions League matches of Borussia Dortmund. They have a lot of guys that play internationally for national teams. I think it's time for Juve to put up a shut-up in the Champions League. They've been disappointing for years, and I think this is a great opportunity for them to turn it around, and I think it's time for their key players to show that they can do it in Europe. What's your take on Allegri's, um, you know, his pedigree, his ability to, to navigate this portion of the Champions League in charge of Juventus? I think he deserves a lot of credit because I think his predecessor was a great coach. Conte deserves so much credit for turning Juve around, but he always looked at the Champions League as we're just happy to be here. We don't have revenues like other clubs. We can't really compete. Allegri, on the other hand, all season long has talked about being in the top eight in Europe. When he was in the Champions League group, even when he was behind Atletico Madrid, he didn't just talk about qualifying. He talked about winning the group and being in first place. I think he deserves a lot of credit for kind of changing the mentality a little bit in Europe. Um, I think, you know, with Milan, he did fairly well with his teams. You know, he always ended up being eliminated by big clubs. So I think this is a good opportunity for him. I think he's convinced a lot of Juve fans that were very skeptical when he was hired and I think, you know, if he can get past this round, I think, you know, he can be really, really thrilled with his first season uh, at Juve. You know, I think we talked about when Allegri took over at Juve, 
you know, the, it was maybe more about Conte leaving than it was about Allegri coming in. But there, yeah. there were some questions there, as you said. Perhaps he's he's proven some himself to the Juve fans. Let me ask you about Conte while I have you, though. Um, sure. Yes, he moves on to the Italian national team. What what's the state of of the program at the moment under Conte, and is there is there satisfaction with the direction things are headed? Well, I think it's been a little bit of a mixed bag. He got off to a strong start, and the last two matches, and this is going back to November, Italy struggled a little bit. They uh, beat some smaller teams. This one nothing. They struggled against Croatia when they played them in Milan. It was a 1-1 draw. Uh, I'm not surprised that Conte is very frustrated that he can't coach the players more. He tried to organize some um, stages with, like, Serie A players right around this time. But the clubs wouldn't agree to send the players because of the European competitions. And quite frankly, I'm sure that if Conte had been coaching Juve and Italy's team wanted to take his players in the middle of February, I doubt he would have wanted to do that. So I think he's a little bit frustrated, but he should have seen the writing on the wall when you coach a national team. You just don't get to spend that much time with the players. There's been some speculation he could leave already. He's been linked to Milan and maybe some big clubs in Europe in the summer. So it wouldn't shock me completely if he were to leave in the summer. But I think, you know, you look at who the other candidates were, uh, the Italian Federation at least deserves a lot of uh, credit for bringing the big name and probably the best candidate they had available. Hey, well, obviously we're, we're, we're in the world, uh, sorry, the European uh, Championship qualifying portion of the calendar or the or, or the, um, um, the the time frame right now as we're dealing with qualifying excuse me uh, next year's tournament obviously um, being in France opportunity for for Italy to to once again yep. be one of the the contenders for that tournament how far away for, are they from being uh, a challenger to Germany or, or, or Spain well obviously Spain comes off a terrible uh, World Cup but certainly Germany how close are they to, to becoming a, a real challenger France is obviously going to be a favorite in that tournament I would agree. I mean, you look at the talent that France has compared to Italy or Germany and France and even still Spain, although they, they do have some young players coming up. Like, I see Italy really struggle. They don't really have many good defenders coming up. Uh, Barzaghi, who was probably one of their best defenders, and hasn't played at all for Juve this season. Gellini has struggled a little bit. Uh, Bonucci's been pretty good for Juve, but uh, I just don't see a great defender on the horizon. Um, to me, the only really world-class players on the 30, you know, on the Azzurri are Verratti and Balotelli when he's on form. So I see the cupboard. I, I, I don't see much talent for the Azzurri, but what needs to be said is that usually when Italy does really well in tournaments is when there's low expectations. Uh, and Conte is a master of using, you know, low expectations as motivations for his team. So, I'm curious to see uh, how things go. I think, you know, a lot of the players on the Azzurri need to finish the season strong. We're seeing guys like Berotti really struggling. So I'm curious to see how Conte integrates more young players on the team. But we've seen when he was at Juve, that's something he really doesn't like to do too much. But I think right now he's going to be forced into it. So I'm curious to see what he does when they start playing again in March. We came out of the World Cup last year, uh, David, with this uh, this notion and several major figures within Italian football talking about a need to reinvigorate the national team. And clearly, um, you know, a lot of that flows from the clubs. Uh, Italy has a reputation for choosing domestically based players over foreign-based players. Yep. Is any of that, before I let you go here, is any of that going to change? Is Conte going to have to to maybe spread the, the net a little bit wider in an op, in, a, in a bid to reinvigorate the, the national team? I think he's going to have to. I mean, we're seeing, especially at striker, we saw Immobile, who plays for Borussia Dortmund. Now, he struggled in the Bundesliga, but he's actually done pretty well in the Champions League, which ironically is one of the reasons why Juve sold them as they weren't convinced he would be able to be considerably good in the Champions League, and he has. So he's playing him, and then there's Graziano Pelé, who's doing really well in the Premier League. And I think, you know, those are the types of players that I think he needs to use more. And, of course, Verratti, you know, that match against Chelsea, I think that put him on the map with a lot of people. I think he's probably the best player moving forward. That's the guy that I would build around, and he plays, you know, abroad. And as you said, I think the culture needs to change 
um, a little bit. You know, to me, what, what's a very interesting point is I think one of the reasons Italian clubs have to struggle in the Champions League, Europa League, is they're just not as athletically fit as their opponents. And I think the fact that they have more of their players playing abroad is probably a good thing for the national team. David Moyel runs the English page over at Gianluca DiMarzio. Go check that out. Certainly follow him on Twitter, David Moyel, A-M-O-Y-A-L. David, appreciate your time and your insight as always. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Jason, for having me on. As always, thank you for promoting Serie A and Council as a whole. I definitely appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. There you go. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll open up those phone lines, 347-756-6276. Hit us up on Twitter, at Soccer Morning. Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go back on Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. And I just thought this morning, if you missed it, over the weekend in the Premier League, you had Joey Barton red carded, uh, which just seems like it's like a warm blanket, is it not? To have Joey Barton being Joey Barton on the field, it, it's just comforting to see that things sometimes don't change, that the world cannot, that's not always a scary place when when, when things don't go the way you expect them to. Joey Barton being Joey Barton warms me. Jonathan Tannewald, you don't really warm me, but I'm glad to have you on the show. What's going on? <laughs> uh, you see, that? that's a called a professional segue, Jonathan. What's going on? Well done. I, I wanted to throw something out there really quick that, that I saw uh, over the weekend, and, and a couple other folks saw it, but I'm not sure whether all your listeners just want to put it out there. Fox put out a new TV ad for the Women's World Cup. Yes. Whose, uh, whose main slogan is that America has a score to settle. Now, I would like to know with whom <laughs> and why Fox <laughs> thinks that there is a score to settle here, because they just settled a fairly big one. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's, I, I don't mind the, 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 the thread, the thread that they're pulling through the men's team and the women's team. I think that's, that's the sense, right? That's the, that's the point that, 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 you know, we're, that America's soccer teams are, you know, maybe we have a men's team and a women's team, but we're all sort of rooting for the same country. So let's, uh, let's, I don't know who, the, again, I don't know who the score is being settled with or supposed to be settled with. But but in terms of that element of it, you, you're the, the same umbrella should be applied to both teams. Sure, no, I'm all for I, I'm all for that. I, I I think that the promotion of it in that way is is a great thing. But I don't think the women are settling a score with Belgium. I I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, again, I'm, and, and to, for Fox for Fox to put it out there settling scores, I just find without any irony on their part i find quite okay so so but okay so you're in charge let's imagine jonathan tannewald and yeah you're not trained for this you're a you're a journalist and an excellent one uh you're in charge of marketing the women's world cup for fox what do you do i mean i mean there's only limited avenues here i mean you could focus on the stars that's the typical uh you know that's the fallback okay look we've got abby wambach we've got alex morgan here you go here's your stars here's hope solo well, whether I, I, you well, want to I might not be in charge of it, but I have a news organization that I'm trying to convince that it's worth their time to cover. So I know okay. a few things. Well, that's about. that's true. No, absolutely. So what would you do? I mean, I'm not saying that this is the wrong way. I'm not sure you're saying that either. You're just a little confused by the messaging. No, I just think it's funny. I I, I think having having a score to settle might actually be the right way to put it. But I wouldn't have portrayed it as having. Well, you want to tie it into the national teams in general. I'm all for that. But the score to settle is with Germany and Japan, I believe. Okay, but again, you're going back and trading on the women. I'm trading on the last women's world yes, cup. No, I'm exactly. Trading on the fact that you know, for for as much discussion as there has been about you know how much the U.S. should be developing talent for the next generation of the U.S. women's national team and how they've failed to do it over the last year or two or three, this is a women's world cup that they have to win. Sure, but but I, I think what what Fox is perhaps the the tax Fox is taking is maybe. Okay, we are. This is our first. This is new to us, or relatively new to us. We are taking this on. We're trying to promote this. Not only are we going to put the men and the women under the same umbrella, which again is the absolute right way to go, but they're going to 
they're probably going to have to imagine that there's going to be a lot of people watching this World Cup or, or perhaps they're trying to attract a lot of people who didn't watch the last Women's World Cup, who don't know that the United States had those, you know, don't know the situation with Germany and Japan, uh, Jonathan. I imagine that that's the, you know, again, so it's not ancient history, but it's certainly four years is a long time. Sure, although a lot of people watched that Women's World Cup four years ago. Sure, they did. But but yeah. again, I, I mean, I imagine that, that that Fox is saying we're sort of resetting things here. Yeah. Again, I, you know, they, they don't have an immediate score to settle with anybody in their group. And in order to get to a point where they're going to be able to score, to, again, I don't know who they're settling the score with. I, I'm with you on that fact. It, it is rather humorous. Do you have anything else for us, Jonathan? I, I don't. I think you've got another caller. Yes, like, I, I so. do. I do. I crossed the streams here. Thanks for the call, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Jonathan Tannenwald, the goalkeeper on Twitter. Go follow him. In the meantime, here we go. 347 on the air. What's up? Hey, what's going on, man? How's it going? Who's this? Uh, this is Cy in New York. What's going on, Cy? Yeah, well, I got a, I got a pair of questions about the business of uh, soccer. Um, I've, I've been a fan, full disclosure, I've been a fan uh, of the sport now for maybe a good seven years, mostly EPL, mostly uh, you know, overseas European stuff. And, you know, with the with the coming of uh, this new uh, franchise here in New York, I'm only a couple blocks from Yankee Stadium, so I figure, uh, you know, I'll get into the MLS now, I'll become a season ticket holder. Okay. And now I'm hearing about a you know, possible work stoppage. Yeah. I mean, this is like I literally heard nothing about this, you know, three <laughs> months ago when we had the, you know, the Lampard debacle. But now all of a sudden this is on the plate. Yeah. And it's at, at the 11th hour. So I want to know, uh, you know, putting up from, from somebody, you know, like you, you know, is well versed in, you know, what's going on with the MLS. To what extent should I be worried and exactly what, is, what are the points of contention? In terms of revenue sharing, is it is uh, it's not, are it's being a, unrealistic or selfish, or the players being delusional? I don't think it's about money straight up, Sai. It's about free agency, which MLS players don't have. Now, I, I explain this to somebody who's not particularly a soccer. My little brother, he's not a. He knows a little bit. He knows what I do. He tries to <laughs> to bring a couple of things up when I see him. He's visiting from from out of town. So last night I'm talking to him and I'm saying, "Hey, MLS players might strike," and he goes, "Why?" And I said, "Well, because they they're trying to get free agency," and for him. The fact that they don't have free agency is mind-blowing because in baseball, free agency, football, free agency, basketball, free agency, every other soccer player in the world outside of the United States has free agency. So this is what the players are going for. They want to be able to, when their contract runs out, they want to be able to pick where they go and play. The league is against this idea because it creates competition for players within MLS, and MLS is built to limit that. MLS is all of these owners are so are in this together. They operate as one big business rather than individual clubs. So mm-hmm. they don't want they don't want a player to his contract to run out. They don't want team A to be bidding against team B for his services because that drives up his salary and if that happens across the board, they're going to be spending more money for the same players essentially. There's a salary so How is that dealt with now? Well, uh, What's it, the current state of affairs? The current state of affairs is that when a player's contract runs out, he is still his rights are still held by the team he was playing for, <laughs> and in order for him, he either has to sign a new contract with them, or, or not play soccer. Well, there are other the, the, the league's argument will be that there are other leagues he could go play in. He doesn't have to play in MLS. There's there's a second division. There's NASL. The Cosmos are right, you know, maybe down the road from you. Not I don't know how long it would take you to get there, but the Cosmos are, are in NASL. They're willing to pay some guys. You got other teams in that league. You actually have other opportunities outside of the United States. Now sometimes you got to qualify, you know, with with uh, uh, work permits and everything else. But there are opportunities. You can go to Mexico and maybe catch on. So MLS will always say. We're not restricting their opportunities because there are other leagues. It's not like the NFL where there's one professional football league that everybody has to play in. You can't, you're not gonna, you know, you're not, you're not gonna leave the NFL and go play anywhere else. So but that sounds like their legal argument in court. That doesn't necessarily sound like their ethical argument. No, I I'm with you on that, and I think most most MLS fans are on the side of the players when it comes to who's right and who's wrong in this push pull. But again, the owners are protecting their investment, and and you know you if you're new to this, maybe you don't know, and some MLS fans uh, probably don't understand how close the league was to folding ten years ago, fifteen years ago, um, how how. Thin the league claims the margins are now. I mean, the league still claims they're losing hundred million dollars a year. Um, some yep. of some of these owners who have been in this league for a long time, who started MLS, have lost a ton of money, and so it, it becomes this thing of whether or not you value, whether or not you understand a businessman's position of I don't want to lose any more money, or I want to see my investment be secured. 
and and therefore not you know not spend as much as we as it'll take to keep the league going if there's free agency. So it's 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 a very delicate balance. I think most fans are on the side of the players, though, Sai. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, for for good reason. I would, you know, that makes sense to me. Now, to what extent do you feel as though that uh, that that structure may lead to or, or has kept the other league from growing as quickly as it would like to? I mean, I understand this, you know, it's an up and coming league. And it's, it's going in the right direction. Well, I, I but, think you look at you know, a couple of those di- kind of policies, and you know, and in uh, structuring your business in that way, a hindrance to. Uh, you can look at it a couple of different ways. Uh, in one way, no, absolutely not, because if you have, if you're a guy sitting on a fortune and you want to get into sports, and you look at the NFL, okay, I'm not spending a billion dollars on a team. Same thing in basketball or baseball; those are closed shops. Those ownerships uh, don't change that often. And when they do, it's a lot of money. Uh, MLS is much lower entry level. I mean, $100 million for New York City FC is a, is a lot of money. That's more than anybody thought MLS was going to get for an expansion team. So that's, but that's, that's still a fraction of what it would cost to buy an NFL team or an NBA team. Um, yeah, that's the Cowboys, you know, yeah, Jersey right. At the, at the same time, so, so what you've got is, is business, um, business people or, or, or wealthy owners who are willing to take a risk on MLS or willing to buy into MLS because they have better cost certainty than you would in almost any other sport. They know that there are protections built in place or put in place with this league that's going to, that are going to keep them from losing a lot of money. Plus, it's a shared burden because of the way MLS operates. On the flip side of that, you could certainly argue that having this, having this single entity structure, having some of the restrictions on spending have prevented MLS from growing in terms of the quality of play on the field and right. the num- and therefore the number of people watching say on television which is how you build your revenue in yeah, in modern you sports attract the fans through through product you know and the product yeah. is other, other so, players on the field if they don't have the quality then yeah it's not attractive i know? don't think mls has expansion teams in new york and orlando and and uh, potentially sacramento and certainly successful teams in seattle and portland and some of these other places if they weren't operating under the structure that they are yeah. but now as you come against a, a CBA negotiation, as the players sit across from the owners and say, hey, you got to let us go where we want to go, you could certainly argue, and, and I, this is where I am, that it's time to take some of those shackles off. Okay. All right, man. Appreciate the phone call. Anything else, Si? Uh, I don't want to monopolize your time. You know, you have anybody else, so I'm going to kind of have one more. And I want to uh, hey, you know what? Nobody else is calling in. It's your show right now. Go for it. All right, cool. Cool. Um. Well, I'm, I'm trying to get a better feel for, uh, you know, how financial fair play is going uh, to work or when you know, the effects it's going to have. Now, I was listening to a, uh, to a podcast, Liverpool, uh, a Liverpool-centric podcast, in which they were pretty much making, a, making a, a case that financial fair play would actually have the opposite effect that, uh, of, its, you know, of its intended purpose, that it will kind of lock in. A, a permanent, you know, uh, class structure in terms of yeah. haves and have-nots. Yeah, it will. Uh, it seems like, and you know what, the argument was like pretty, uh, pretty convincing. It seemed like that's exactly what those policies would do. Now, you know, if if, if we're going to have a permanent, you know, underclass and and and, uh, and a permanent, you know, overbearing class in terms of oligarchs in uh, in European soccer, how long is it going to be until you know we just abandon the whole? countries thing and just go to a super league just have well, yeah i mean I, I i i think about that t- uh, all the time si and you look at the way things are in spain with barcelona and real madrid dominating yeah. the television revenue as you said it, it, and actually that's where i fall uh, and i'm not even sure that financial fair play was originally conceived to have any intent on, on on bringing up smaller clubs or allowing smaller clubs to compete that wasn't the intent the intent is to um, the the intent is to to make clubs operate within their means. That's it. That's end end of story. Now what within their, when, within their specific means. yes, exactly. And not when a, you do that, you you completely calcify all of those tiers that you're talking about. And right. so and, right. and 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 look, hey, you know what? Good for 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 Mansoor and City Football Group for getting in while they did because they wouldn't be able to do that now under financial fair play. And then they even got dinged on some stuff. Uh, the last time that the books were checked, so did PSG. But now that they've already got all that money in, and now that their their revenues have crept up, they should be they should be able to stay where they're at. But Manchester United and Arsenal and Chelsea, uh, those clubs are going to be solidified as the top. And, and it's not like anything changes. So, I mean, this is the way things have been going. But uh, it's going to make it harder for a club like Southampton to to be good year to year to year. They may have a great season. Okay. And the same thing, Atletico Madrid's got some new investment. But again, it's 
because financial fair play requires clubs to use to only spend the revenue that they're making as a football club rather than having outside investment. I mean, your own the, the financial fair play rules say that the owner can't write a check to his club to subsidize buying a player or mm-hmm. uh, to to do anything to improve. I think maybe maybe there's some uh, allowances when it comes to infrastructure like training grounds yeah, and the like. Sure yeah, yeah but I don't. Though. But in terms of the playing product, it. it you're right. It's a hundred percent going to create a situation where it's going to be haves and haves nots. And if you're a have not, you're always going to be a have not. Yeah, see, because I'm worried about like you know Liverpool not being able to make that you know make that jump into you know being a permanent top four uh, club because you know because just structure wise they may be locked out in terms of what they're willing to you know in terms of their wage structure they won't be competitive. For, you know, well, this is why players. this is why building that new stadium is so important to Liverpool side. They if they can get that new stadium and they can get their game day revenues up, that'll allow them to be within financial fair play regulations and stay in the top tier, the top 4 or 5 in the Premier League year to year to year. Yeah. And, yeah, and I mean, you got and you got to be I mean, in Champions that's, League. That's all well and good as long as, you know, you also kind of promise to not price out, you know, it's a strange uh, absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't want to price out, you know, you don't want to price out your fans. You don't want to price out, you know, the you know the most rabid fans who create the atmosphere that allows you to have billion dollar TV contracts that are sellable. This is know, a, uh, you this, know in terms of our international. This, this is why fans should be very careful about looking at financial fair play as some sort of uh, solution to European football financial problems, or even looking at Michelle Platini as anything else but a crony for the big clubs. And I, and you, you asked about it. He's, he's set bladder light, essentially. You asked yeah. about you asked about whether or not we're moving to, towards a Super League. I mean, it's going to take a real... It's going to take something major, and somebody's really going to have to put themselves out there in terms of breaking the tra- tradition of these domestic leagues. But, I mean, I think it's conceivable. You could see two, three, four clubs leave England, two or three clubs leave Spain, Two or three clubs leave leave France and, and Germany and the like, form a Super League, and then everybody else continues to play their domestic soccer. Now, I don't know how that will impact how we view the sport and whether or not a club like you know, West Ham or a club like uh, Norwich or a club like uh, Everton will ever get recognized and, and be able to draw more fans. I mean, if, if Manchester United and Arsenal and Chelsea and Man City all leave the Premier League and go play in a Super League every season and essentially replace the Champions League, do people even care about what Everton's doing anymore except Evertonians now? I don't know. It's a difficult question. I mean, I would think I would think the BPL would be all right. I would, you know, you, you may have to worry about uh, you know Bundesliga overall attendance and you know, a couple other leagues, you know, in, in, in the margins. But I mean, well, for I all intents and purposes, look what you have now. Yeah. You know where yeah. you know, when when the, when the two big Spanish clubs come to town, that's when everybody else in the league, you know, uh, is able to make their nugget in terms of ticket sales. Yeah, that's absolutely. You know, right. and then the rest of the, the rest of the year, they you know they're scraping by. You know, so if they were to leave on a permanent basis, then yeah, that that league you know may fall apart or just only be a league in, well, in name alone. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, thanks for the phone call, Simon. I'll let you go. Uh-huh. But when you talk about whether or not the EPL would still be okay, remember that Sky. BT Sport, all of those television contracts, the foreign contracts that the league gets, that money is shared. You know, you you obviously make more the more you're on television. The bigger clubs therefore make more money because they're on TV more often. But if they pulled out, if the big clubs pulled out, those television contracts change drastically. They're no longer worth as much as they are now, which fundamentally changes the amount of money coming in to those smaller clubs which, again, may impact the quality of the league over the long term. And, and, and even over the short term, as you see the top players from each club leave in an effort to get into those Super League clubs. I mean, look, this is all speculation. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. But it's, it's because Europe is relatively small in terms of geography, it's, it's not that difficult to conceive of a future in which those clubs – in a bit, just like they, just like the English clubs did back in '92 when they formed the Premier League, they wanted control of their television. They wanted to be able to control and make as much money as possible. And the First Division and the FA weren't allowing them to do that. You could very well see something happen, happen like that, where the top clubs in Europe all break away. I hope it doesn't happen. I'm a traditional kind of guy. I'd like to see everything stay the way it is. Now, the the money is again insane, and it's creating a a top class, a, a, an elite class of clubs, and then everybody else. And that may never change. But at least you know, occasionally, 
Burnley can tie Chelsea in the league, and Manchester United can lose to Swansea in the league. And you take those things out of the equation, and instead of Manchester United, Swansea's the the biggest, uh, the the biggest, um, um, the the biggest club that Swansea can beat becomes. I'm sorry about this, Spurs or something. It's not. It doesn't quite have the same feel about it. All right, that's an excellent phone call from Cy. Appreciate you uh, chiming in there. Good questions as always. Not not what I intended to talk about, but who cares? That's why we're here. That's why the phone lines are open every single day. All right. Here's your reminder. Go buy yourself a soccer morning mug at backheel.com slash store. Go buy a t-shirt. 3nilfc.com is the exclusive place to get a soccer morning t-shirt. Uh, we're on iTunes. Uh, ratings and reviews always help out there. And remember, the live show, worldsoccertalk.com slash live. Am I missing anything? I feel like I'm missing something. Oh, here, here's something I wanted to do. Here's an open call. I need musical selections. I think it's time to freshen up the music here at Soccer Morning. If you're a, if you're into music, if you like music, send me suggestions. I may not like it. I've got my own personal taste, but at least I want to broaden my horizons a bit as we look towards the future here at Soccer Morning. And and you know, it's just it's a little stale. I mean, I like all the stuff we've got. I mean, this is this is a fine song. Maybe it's time to freshen things up. Hit us up at Soccer Morning with all of that, or me, Davis JSN on Twitter. Thank you very much to Christian Renez and David Amoyal. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Bye.